0: After several failed attempts this summer, got away on a little vacation. This past week, we got over to Hilton Head uh, with my mom for three nights and did not leave the condo. And it was a real nice, nice time over there. And the thing about vacations, um, no matter how long they are, uh, they have to come to an end. And that's sort of like hanging over the thing the whole time, like sooner or later, I have to, Go home. And the end of First Samuel is kind of like the end of all the other books in the Old Testament. They they kind of end on a downer. You know, it's like you get to the end of the Pentateuch and Moses dies, and you get to the end of Joshua, and Joshua dies, and Samuel dies, and Saul dies, and David dies, and they all die. And so we've come to the end of First Samuel today, and it is, it's not the happiest ending. That you could ever want, uh, but hopefully we can we can transition that into uh, seeing what what First Samuel points to. If you remember from a long time ago in a chapel far far away from here, uh, these were my introductory remarks about First Samuel. And if you don't remember, that's okay. A lot has happened since then. Uh, but first of all, this is these are the big things happening in First Samuel. The monarchy is being established. There's the first king of Israel whose named Saul, and he's a king like the people wanted. And then there's the second king of Israel who is rising, and that is David. And he is a king like God wanted. So this is a book about kings. And it's about why Israel needed a king. And it's about why we need a king and the kind of king we need. And as I closed with last week, we still need a king. If you're bothered with the government right now, that's okay, because we're going to live in a monarchy, but we would not often appoint uh, the kind of king God would have, and so we've been looking at that. On a side note, let me say this as we're concluding here. There were a lot of reasons that I wanted to preach 1 Samuel, and uh, there were a lot of things that I wanted to take time and cover, but there was no way that I could have anticipated how relevant and appropriate, David's flight from Saul was going to be at our time. There's no way I could have known that. David's desperation to know God in the midst of such suffering as he was pursued by Saul was so convicting and so inspiring. And I just have to say, if you have to start preaching on video during a pandemic, there are worse places than you could be than the narratives that we were in, in that part of 1 Samuel. All right, so last week we brought the story of David to a close. Um, In 1 Samuel, uh, if if you're looking for a happy ending, you needed to stop right there. David is ascending, but Saul is descending. Let me read to you from Psalm 1, because I think this is a helpful place to just sort of... uh, Familiar Psalm. Blessed is the man... Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands, not stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. and in his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the righteous one is like a tree, and all that he does prospers. And the wicked are not so. The wicked one is like the chaff that the wind blows away. And I would say that David and Saul here at the end of 1 Samuel, function as representatives of those two kinds of man. David is the man who delights in the Lord. And Saul is like the chaff that blows away. Verse 6 there says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that doesn't feel like our experience right now. That doesn't feel like what we see. We look around, the wicked seem to prosper. And the righteous... Seem more like the chaff who are blowing in the wind. And that's why it's important to see what's happening here at the end of 1 Samuel, because God is fulfilling his promises. He is fulfilling his promise to David that he would be king, and he is fulfilling his word to Saul that he would die. And so Saul is in the north fighting against the Philistines. Last week we saw David down in the south fighting against the Amalekites. And as this sweeping narrative comes to an end, I think it would be good for us to reflect on that timeless truth that, in spite of what we perceive, the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish. Peter tells us the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness. Will he punish the wicked? Yes, he will. Why does God not bless the righteous? He does, he will. And a day of reckoning comes for Saul, just as it will for every person. So let's jump into the narrative. Uh, There's not a lot of commentary here. Let's look at verse 1 through 3, the story of the battle in 1 Samuel uh, 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers bound him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So the second half of verse 1 pretty much sums it up. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Geboa. And last week we saw that there was a great deliverance to be had for David against the Amalekites. This week there is no deliverance coming. And sadly, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, the enemies of Yahweh, in this instance, win the day. I don't want to pass over the first name that is mentioned too quickly. Jonathan. Jonathan has been a major character in the book of 1 Samuel. And I believe after this time through 1 Samuel, I would say that Jonathan is probably an underappreciated hero of the faith. He is a faithful follower of Yahweh and he is a friend to David. But most importantly, he is an example of losing one's life. For God's sake, because he gave up the kingdom for David, and he gave up his life for Saul. So he dies at the right hand of his father. He did so out of loyalty to Yahweh. He accepts the fact that he's not going to be king, but he continues to live his life in the position that he has underneath his dad, Saul. So Jonathan is a real representation of a man who gave up a kingdom He couldn't keep for the sake of a kingdom that he couldn't lose. Jonathan is that guy. And do not assume that Jonathan's life is a failure. Jonathan may have ended up dead on that battlefield at Mount Gilboa, but in Yahweh's eyes, Jonathan's life was a success. He faithfully lived out the calling assigned to him by God. And there's nothing tragic about doing what God has called you to do. Saul, on the other hand, is badly wounded, but he's still alive. Look at verses 3 through 6. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So last week we saw what was God's promise to David. You go and you fight the Amalekites. You will deliver them all. And everybody was delivered. So God's word came true. This week we see that God's word is fulfilled in its entirety. If you if you didn't listen to the sermon on chapter 28, Saul goes to that witch at Endor, brings up Samuel from the dead, and as Samuel prophesies to Saul, you will die the next day, uh, and, and Israel will be defeated. Saul's death comes at his own hand, not at the hand of the Philistines. His armor bearer bravely refuses to do it. There's nothing heroic about Saul's death. And words matter. You know, we all, I always talk to you guys, when you're reading through the scriptures, notice words that are repeated. Listen to some of these words that the author uses in this section. To flee three times, to fall four times, strike down, pierce through two times, cut off, to die four times concerning Saul in verses five through seven. These are words of brutal disaster. And the writer is describing with great clarity, the fulfillment of God's promises back in chapter 28. A quick word about Saul's death too that I think is worth mentioning here. He died like he lived, taking his own life into his own hand. He takes his own life. And so even at the very end, even at the very end, Saul had so many opportunities to repent. He has so many opportunities to cry out to God Other kings did it at the end of their lives. He could have cried out to God there on the battlefield. But instead of crying out to God, Saul is so self-willed and he is so focused on himself that he takes his own life, fearing the Philistines rather than fearing God. He could have cried out. Most don't. Israel falls. Saul falls. God's word does not this is not a happy fulfillment of God's word. There's certainly not much here that we can rejoice in, but it must move us to trust. Isaiah 40, 6 through 8, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. At the end of first Samuel, the only thing that stands is God's word. Told you this was a downing. It gets worse before it gets better. Look at verses 7 through 10. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Like I said earlier, Yahweh's enemies win the day. And this isn't uncommon in the Old Testament. This is very strange. Other nations with different gods do not understand Yahweh. God is so committed to his own holiness and to keeping his word that he is willing to allow his glory to be diminished in the eyes of the Philistines and in the eyes of the people around Israel rather Then not let his word come to be. We talked about this at the beginning of 1 Samuel, when the Ark of the Covenant is taken off to the temple of Dagon and placed there in that hall of gods. When you defeated another nation, when when the Philistines defeated Israel, in the Philistines' mind, their God had conquered Israel's God. And so the sight of Israel fleeing, leaving their cities, abandoning their cities, the Philistines coming in to live in their cities brings shame on Yahweh. Get this point. When the people saw Saul dead, they abandoned their cities and they fled. The king that they had asked for. Remember 1 Samuel 8? Give us a king to be like the other nations. They got the king to be like the other nations, and when he died, they fled. Because the king that they had put their trust in, rather than God, had died, and all hope was lost. Let me just pause here for a second. I think this is worth mentioning right now, because we're going to have to do a lot of discipling one another in the lead up to November. But some of you believe that if one candidate or the other loses in November, all will be lost. But human kings do not determine the destiny of the righteous. And God will protect his people and his church, no matter who wins and no matter who loses. If you put your heart in the hands of a human ruler, you will be disappointed. And you will have to live in fear. So the next section then is gruesome. And be reminded... The Bible was written in a different time. It was not written in a time like today. And so this is a very gruesome scene. Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen at Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beit For all of human history, there has been this practice of pilfering the dead on a battlefield. I've been, re- I've been listening to Les Miserables, the book, not the musical. Uh, and uh, I, I got through, if you've ever tried to get through Les Miserables, there's an extended section on Waterloo that I'm not sure what it has to do with the rest of the story. Uh, but I just got through the, all of that, and, and he speaks of... The the battlefield at Waterloo being covered uh, with corpses. And in two days, all of the corpses were naked in the open fields because the people had just come and just taken everything from the slain. And so that's what the Philistines are doing. They're going out and they're pilfering the slain. And to their surprise, they find there Saul and his sons. And they're delighted. And so they chop off his head. And they strip off his armor and they take his body and they go and they fasten it to the wall of a city called Benshan. And they place his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. In the same way that they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into that temple of Dagon. They take Saul's armor and they leave it there because Saul, the king, is subservient to Ashtaroth. And this is just another shot at Yahweh. The Philistines think, look... Yahweh could not even protect his own king. And the sadness in this text, it's not just about Saul. It's also about the fact that Yahweh's name has been tarnished. Saul's sin led to Israel's defeat, which led to God's glory being diminished. I can just talk loud. Are you Yeah. Sure? All right. I see. Better than nothing. No. Well, it's hard to keep going when you're behind you. All right. Where were we? Saul's sin. Saul died. So Saul's sin leads to Israel's defeat, and that leads God's glory to be diminished. So here's the deal. When we call ourselves Christians, we are identifying with the name of Christ. And so Saul, in spite of his lifestyle, still identified as a follower of Yahweh. And so when people see us, we are picturing Christ to them. How we speak, how we drive, how we spend our money. When we claim the name of Christ, we are bearing the name of Christ. Therefore... As Christians, as, remember what we talked about earlier, as people who are gathered together in this church to worship our king, we should conduct ourselves in a way that does not take away from God's glory. It should be our goal to never bring dishonor on him as king. Everybody's talking about Hamilton these days and the the musical. And uh, the major character is Aaron Burr. A lot of people don't know this, but Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century theologian. Aaron Burr's father, also named Aaron Burr, died suddenly at the age of 41. He was a very young president of Princeton College. And at his death, Esther Burr, so Esther Burr was Aaron Burr's mother, and Jonathan Edwards' daughter wrote this to her parents. Oh, I am afraid that I shall conduct myself so as to bring dishonor on my God. No, rather let me die this moment than be left to dishonor God's holy name. I am overcome. I must conclude with once more begging that as my dear parents, please remember that they would not forget their great afflicted daughter, now a lonely widow, nor her fatherless children. That's the desire to not bring shame. Even even in her pain at losing her husband at a young age, she is is crying out to say, God, let me not bring dishonor on your name. So our whole lives should be lived out with an awareness of God's glory. We talked about about how the, the, the angels and the principalities are watching the church because the manifold wisdom of God is somehow on display in us Saul's actions had other cosmic implications, and so do ours. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that God will allow his glory to be diminished so that he can accomplish his purposes? Do you care? I know a lot of people these days, they talk about justice and they talk about the importance of justice. God cared so much about justice. He cared so much about bringing what was just and right upon Saul that he allowed his glory to be diminished to accomplish that. And so finally, there's a touching note to end the chapter in the whole book, verses 11 through 13. When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beit-Shon. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. The inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. So Beit Shan is at the entrance to the valley of Jezreel. The, the, uh, Jabesh Gilead is on the other side of the, the, the Jordan River, about 20 miles away. Why do they care, by the way? If you remember 1 Samuel 11, uh, Nahash Uh, The the snake, Nahash the snake, the the Amalekite, was the one who came and was persecuting the people of Jabesh Gilead. And the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and Saul took a band and came across and saved the people of Jabesh Gilead. Well, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they don't have very short memories. And so they go, the Bible says that they, they traveled all night to go and get the body of Saul and his sons. So regardless of the conduct of Saul, Saul is still their king, and their loyalty to their king doesn't end with his death. And the spirit may have departed from Saul, and Yahweh may not be answering Saul anymore, but he still deserved a proper burial. Secondly, I just want you to see briefly that David mourns... If you're looking in your Bible, just take one step. We're just going to, we're going to take one little toe over into 1 Samuel. By the way, if you also remember from the um, introduction, 1 and 2 Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is one book. All right. So it would sort of keep going and Lord willing, at some point in the future, we will pick up the story for now. We're going to stop at the end of 1 Samuel, but just right over into 2 Samuel verses 11 and 12. I just want you to see this. This is as David has heard about Saul's death. Then David took his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. We have learned so much about how to treat our enemies specifically from David, and I think this is especially relevant in our day, where we think so evil about people and about people who disagree with us, especially people with a different affiliation than us. David is genuinely grief stricken over the death of Saul. And his men back home in Ziklag they mourn and they mourn for Jonathan and they mourn for the house, the people of God who were defeated, because they're disturbed about the condition of God's people. Our society is in turmoil. As a friend said to me this week, we are devouring ourselves. And that is true. And to some extent, the chaos that we are enduring as a society is exactly what we deserve. Because we've abandoned God's word. And we've shaken our fist at him. And we've said, we will not have you to rule over us. And if not for God's mercy, it would be a lot worse than it is right now. But as people of the book, we know the source of the wickedness. We know the real problem with the system. So how do we respond to those around us? Do we say, you're just getting what's coming to you? Do, how do we react to politicians who are rocked by some scandal? Do we rejoice or do we mourn? And I think David is a is a is a light to us that we wouldn't be like that Pharisee in the temple who sees the tax collector and says, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We could be like David or better still, like Jesus, who saw the sin of the people and wept and wept over the chaos that it caused, and even to cry out to God to say, "Have mercy on us! Like, don't, don't, don't give us what we deserve. Have mercy on our nation and on our society, because we all know that God will repay the wicked and the unjust. And we can still mourn for the effects that that sin has had on their souls." There's a final word of commentary. Don't turn there. It's in First Chronicles 10. This is God's little final word about Saul's life. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And he also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. In case you were still wondering about Saul's fate. Just to be clear, it was his choices that led to his destruction. Remember Psalm 1-6 that we read earlier. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And just to take you all the way back to kind of where we started this year, 2 Corinthians 5, this verse that I've read to you over and over again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died... So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Saul is the ultimate example of living for yourself. And Jesus came to deliver us from the consequences of living for ourselves. And so there's so many things that we could talk about to conclude this book this morning. There's so many things that we've covered. Certainly there is our need for a righteous king. And even David, even David, as great as he is, he will fail. Because he will sin and he'll die. That's the problem with human kings. Human kings sin and they die, except for one. And so first Samuel sets us up for Jesus. Because he is the only person who never sinned and who will never die. Secondly, First Samuel is a book about failed leadership. We could talk about the fact that you can't read First Samuel without learning a lot of lessons about how not to lead. Eli and his sons are the worst. Samuel's sons aren't fit to lead. The people demand a king and get Saul. Saul becomes so self-centered that he gives up his kingdom because he's obsessed with hunting down David. First Samuel is filled with leaders who took their eye off the ball. Let me just leave you with two thoughts. These are the two biggies, I think, specifically related to chapter 31. First of all, sin really does make you stupid. Sin really does make you stupid. Remember all the way back in chapter 18, when David and Saul are coming back into town after defeating Goliath, and all those ladies are singing, Saul has claimed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. And it says in that passage, they ascribe to David ten thousands, and to me, thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David with suspicion from that day on. Yikes. Do you see the significance of from that day on? The rest of his life was spent pursuing David, not God. How does the king of Israel end up in a witch's house the night before he commits suicide on the field of battle? And it all started with one envious thought. You see, we don't believe that sin is as awful as it is. We toy with it. We keep it around. We seek out ways to justify it. We convince ourselves that our own little pet sins aren't as bad as the really big ones from everybody else. And not only should we recognize the danger of all that sin, but we should recognize that that's why Jesus had to come and die. Little ones, big ones. Even the small ones. Even those envious thoughts. When was the last time you had an envious thought and thought to yourself, Jesus had to die for that sin? David and Saul both sin. We'll see it in 2 Samuel one day. You pick one which is worse Saul murdering the 85 priests and and their families at Nob, or David committing uh, adultery and, and murder. It doesn't matter. They both commit heinous sins. Why is David a man after God's own heart? Why is every king of Israel after David commended when they walk in the ways of David? Because David desperately loved God and repented again and again and again. David hated his sin. Saul cultivated his sin. David loved God. Saul loved Saul. And the cross is necessary because sin is so bad. Sin is destroying the human race. The only way to solve the problem of sin was for God the Father to send his son to die. Who would have thought that's the magnificent thing that the angels and the powers and the principalities are amazed at? So when you start to justify your little sins, go back and start reading in 1 Samuel 18 and just track Saul's decline. Until this point in chapter 31. Secondly. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. David was anointed king all the way back in chapter 16. He was a kid. Probably 14 or 15 years old. He will become king of Judah. In 2 Samuel 2. And he won't become king of all of Israel. uh, For another 7 years. And in between there will be a civil war in Israel. And there are times when it looked like he would not be king at all because he was being hunted like an animal by the leader of the nation. But God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. And so for us, there are a lot of things today that we can look at those promises and we can be like, I I don't see that happening right now. You are a new creation. I I don't feel like a new creation. God is working all things together for your good. Well, 2020 doesn't feel like it's all coming out for my good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't feel like I can do much of anything. But God keeps his promises. You may not feel like it. David didn't feel like it in those caves in the wilderness. But just like eventually, David was eventually made king, we one day will be made perfect. We one day will be mature in Christ. We one day will stand before our master at the right time. And in the meantime, like David, like we saw last week, we should strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Remind ourselves of those promises. Place our hand in his hand. So we're going to turn uh, once again... And we're going to take communion, and I'm so happy to be able to do it, to participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, First of all, since we haven't done this a ton lately, just a reminder, this is is an act of participation. It's something that we do in together, and it's something that we do together to proclaim the Lord's death together. And so you are invited to participate if you are a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly... Erica mentioned that I might want to say a word about these cups, okay, Uh, because I think there might have been a little confusion last week. So there's a cup, and in this cup, uh, there is bread on the top, and there's juice in the bottom. I think there might have been some confusion as to the existence of the little wafer there. So you actually have to pull off the top of the uh, little plastic piece, and there's a piece of bread under there, and then you can pull off the, um, the bottom part. And like, like on the airplane, uh, you may want to f- adjust your own cup before adjusting the ones of the people next to you. Uh, some of the children may have a hard time, so go ahead and, and take care of yours and then help them take care of theirs as well. Okay, so that's, that's what we're looking at. So, so grab hold of those. You may want to prepare them, and then I'll come back up here in just a second, and I'll read, and we, we will partake together.